بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله الحمد لله this is the final session for real for module 5 on the Fard Ayn of the prayer. Last week we endeavored to complete the entire module but we went over the time a little bit and we didn't finish discussing certain issues. So inshallah tonight we're going to wrap everything up and after this I will send out the test through the group and I think I put the updates in the WhatsApp group about when you can bring that back in or send it to me. So we've covered a lot of material in these 10 classes. And from the beginning to where we are so far, we've learned all of these things you see on the slide. I won't even read, read them all out, there's so many. Things that have to do with preparing for the Salat, the external conditions to the Salat, and then the conditions for the validity of the prayer that are internal within the Salat itself, the pillars, the obligations, the sunnahs, the reasons why there's certain differences in the postures in the prayer, things that invalidate prayer, things that are disliked, things that are permissible, the prayer of the traveler, witr, sunnah prayers, the prostration of forgetfulness, which was the more confusing uh, of all of these. And then the prostration of recitation, sujood tilawa and qada, making up misprayers. And that's where we ended off last week. What we have for tonight are four things in particular, and one issue that is just miscellaneous. So we have the Jumu'ah prayer, followed by the Eid prayer, then the Janazah, and then issues that concern how one prays behind an Imam, the things that may arise, and at the end, miscellaneous, just a few odds and ends, things that aren't always neatly categorized in the previous categories. So, let us start with Jumu'ah. Now, Jumu'ah, is it completely Fard'ayn on everyone? No. It's not Fard'ayn on the women folk, on the ladies. It is Fard'ayn on men. So, if we're technical about this, do ladies, do women need to learn the fiqh of Jumu'ah? Is it Fard'ayn on them to know the ins and outs of Jumu'ah prayer? Well, if they intend to go, they should know what makes it valid, what invalidates it, and so on. And if they have sons, they should know so they can convey that to their sons, upon whom it will be fard'ayn at a certain point. So we learn it male and female. But in terms of going to Jumu'ah and attending it, that is fard'ayn on men. And we say it's fard'ayn on men to know the conditions and requirements for Jumu'ah. 
because it's obligatory for them. Now, there are conditions, just like salat in general, there are conditions for the obligation and then conditions that are within the prayer itself. So the shurut of obligation, shurut al-wujub, are the conditions that must be in place before we say Jumu'ah is wajib, before it's obligatory on someone. So these conditions are pretty straightforward. Being male, if you're a female, Jumu'ah is not wajib. Being free, this means if a person is a slave or if they are imprisoned, Jumu'ah is not wajib. This brings up an interesting conversation about establishing Jumu'ah in prisons. That's a, a kind of nazila, sort of, at least in North America. It is from the maqasid of the sharia to help them preserve their deen in the penitentiary system. So establishing Jumu'ah in a prison would be advisable. But being free is a condition for its obligation. Uh, being resident is a condition for obligation. If you're a traveler, it's not wajib. Likewise, sound health. If a person is in ill health, Jumu'ah is not wajib on them. And safety of passage and sound eyesight. Now, this harkens back to a time when travel, even locally, was sometimes dangerous due to the, uh, the conditions of the road, safety, or the weather patterns. The road could be really muddy or it's not safe due to brigands. But generally, if the passage is safe to get to Jumu'ah, it's wajib. And sound eyesight is required for it to be an obligation. If a person is blind, they're not required to go to Jumu'ah. And when we say conditions for obligation, that doesn't mean that if someone doesn't meet these conditions, they can't go to Jumu'ah. It's just that for them, it's not obligatory. This means that if you're a female, or if someone is a, an inmate in a prison, they may have other conditions to establish Jumu'ah. Uh, if a person's a traveler, they can go to Jumu'ah. If they are not feeling well, like obviously there's issues of deciding should you stay home because you don't want to spread something or not, but let's say a person has a really bad migraine. That's not contagious. If it's a really bad migraine that's somewhat debilitating, they can still go to Jumu'ah if they want to deal with it patiently, but it's not obligatory, uh, and so on. Now, the Friday prayer has also conditions for validity. Remember we said for Salat, you have conditions that make it obligatory, shurutul wujub, and then you have conditions for validity, for it to be sound and accepted. Shurutul Siha. Among these conditions is that the Friday prayer has to be held in a city or its outskirts. That means you cannot hold Jumu'ah in a small village or an open desert area. It has to be in a city or its outskirts. And small village is relative. Like basically, small here meaning there's no jami'ah, there's no congregational masjid where Jumu'ah could be held. You know, if it's just a few people in a village who are nearer to a town that has a larger jami'ah, they wouldn't establish Jumu'ah in their locality. Now, the next condition 
and of course this is all in the Hanafi school the next condition is the Sultan or the head of state or one appointed by him leads the prayer if there is no ruler Muslims must still congregate and agree on someone to lead the Friday prayer in this case it is valid and therefore obligatory to attend so this in the Hanafi school is seen as a condition for validity but due to the umum al-balwa and the issues with, with politics and rule uh, you appoint someone to hold the Jumu'ah and you still go now this is a, a somewhat sticky issue and depending on where you go you may find a lot of the mashayikh will pray Jumu'ah at the masjid and they pray Dhuhr right after it as a precaution because in their opinion that condition is missing so as a precaution they will pray Dhuhr on their own after Jumu'ah some of them do this um, that's not a position that is held by the other schools necessarily but it's a position now in our day and age and especially here this condition cannot be fulfilled so we should just go and fulfill the Jumu'ah and if a person wants to stick to this strictly and out of abundance of caution pray Dhuhr after it they're entitled to do that they can do that if they want the third condition is uh, another issue that comes up and that is that the time of Dhuhr come in when the khutbah and the prayer is done so in the Hanafi school the Jumu'ah is the same as Dhuhr time in terms of when you begin it so you wouldn't begin the Jumu'ah khutbah or the prayer before Dhuhr comes in now now it seems to coincide but if you go into the summertime Dhuhr is let's say Dhuhr is at 145 we have Jumu'ah here the khutbah starts consistently at 115 so what's going on there are we violating this condition uh, yes we are but we are taking the Hanbali position due to the need because the Hanbali madhab considers Jumu'ah to enter at a time before the sun passes the zenith the zenith is at the top they consider Jumu'ah to come before that so we're adopting that position many masajid in North America are adopting that Hanbali position and praying Jumu'ah in a time that is valid in the Hanbali school that views the time entering before the sun has passed the zenith if a person wanted to be very very strict about this for Jumu'ah year round they would need to make sure that they're holding it at a consistently later time for it to be consistently say I don't know two o'clock all year round but then you come up with another problem in the winter time if Asr is coming in at two I don't know 240 you, you have a very short window for Jumu'ah so the khutbahs need to be a lot shorter so this is the workaround basically and the next condition is that at least three men are in attendance and after that there has to be a general permission so no Muslim can be barred from joining the Friday prayer otherwise the prayer would be invalid so the fuqaha say for the Jumu'ah to be valid it cannot be in a private place that allows some people and bars others from entering or 
a place that is open to the public, but they say, if you come uh, and we don't like you because you belong to this jabah or whatever, you have to you have to leave. If you're picking and choosing who can come and who can who must go, this means that Jumu'ah will be invalid. Um, I mean, there's another opinion in the Hanafi school that says otherwise, but that is a, a strong position. So this means that it is in the jami'ah, it is in the congregational masjid. It's for everybody, right? Now, generally, in the Farda'ayn knowledge about Jumu'ah, we learn that it is wajib, obligatory, to hasten to the Friday prayer at the first call to prayer. So, a sa'i, hastening, this is mentioned in Surah Al-Jumu'ah, فَسْعَوْ إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعَ Hasten to the remembrance of Allah and forsake buying and selling. Bay' means buying or selling. Now, it says here the first call to prayer, which implies that there's another call to prayer. So what's going on with that? Well, ideally we should have two adhans. We should have the first adhan allowing people time to pray their sunnahs and get themselves situated. The second adhan, which is at the time of the, of the Jumu'ah, when the Imam comes, according to the way of Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu. But a lot of masajid don't do that. They're not dropping something obligatory, but they're dropping something that is uh, preferred. It's, it's ideal. But a lot of people don't do that anymore. Once the Imam emerges or stands on the minbar, one may not pray or speak until after the prayer. Do you know why I raised my voice there? <laughs> because, you see, when you come into the masjid for Jumu'ah, you are facing the Qibla. You're looking at me or looking wherever, facing the wall. I see every single person who's walking in. And it's unbelievable how many distracting things happen that the khatib has to filter out as they're giving the khutbah. A couple of weeks ago, a person stood up in Jumu'ah and prayed eight rak'ahs during my khutbah. Eight rak'ahs, one after the other. And I was tempted to just say something, but I didn't want to shame him or embarrass him. But maybe someone should talk to him. Uh, I see people reading books. I see people on their phones. I see people conversing with their neighbor, giving salams. All of these things are, are improper. Once the imam emerges or stands on the minbar, all of that is done. And the Hanafi school, out of all the schools, is actually pretty strict on this stuff. Stricter than others. Because in the Hanafi school, you don't even return salams during the sermon. And in the Hanafi school, you don't even say subhanallah when the imam says something profound. And in the Hanafi school, you don't even say sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he repeats the name of the Prophet You say it in your heart, but you don't verbalize it. Now, in some of the other madhahib, you're allowed to verbalize it under your breath, and you know, you're actually saying it. The Hanafi school is actually stricter here, and they say, no, you should say it in your heart. You're not verbalizing it, even with a low voice. They say in the Hanafi school that you don't engage in these forms of adhkar, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, MashaAllah, all these things. You know, and people do it 
and other madhahib may accept that to an extent. But that just shows you how strict it is. What none of the madhahib accept is having a full-blown conversation, which I see almost every Jumu'ah. Laughing, people just cutting up in the back. I, I remember a few years ago, I, it, was a, it was an Eid. It was when Jumu'ah, when Eid fell on a Jumu'ah. And it was Eid al-Fitr. So you know you're sleep deprived, you know, still tired. So I come to give Jumu'ah and I'm really tired. And these kids, these teenagers, they were talking in the back. And I had the staff and I kind of banged it on the, the minbar to get their attention. And uh, alhamdulillah it stopped, but it happens. Uh, okay, uh, it's disliked to eat, to drink, to fiddle around, or turn to and fro during the sermon. Our teachers instruct us that when we sit at Jumu'ah, the etiquette is to sit and face the Imam. You may have your head down, right? I get it, you know, people are often tired. But the etiquette, the higher way, is to actually be upright and to look at the Imam. To not just be have, having your head down. Definitely, one shouldn't be turning here and there and fidgeting and doing all this other stuff. The Friday prayer takes the place of the Dhuhr prayer. So if you catch Jumu'ah, you, you don't have to pray Dhuhr. If you miss the Jumu'ah, you have to pray Dhuhr. And if a person joins the Jumu'ah prayer late, and they join it in the Tashahud of the final sitting of the Jumu'ah prayer, after the Salams of the Imam, they get up and they finish two rak'ah of Jumu'ah. Because they still caught it at the tail end. If they got there during the Salam, no, they have to pray Dhuhr. This is important to know. That's it. Like, it's really basic. And these are things that we need to remind ourselves of time and again. Because people often violate the etiquettes of Jumu'ah. Uh, talking, fidgeting, doing things. You know, prioritizing the wrong things. People think, well, it's virtuous to recite the Qur'an. So I'm going to recite from the Mus'haf during Jumu'ah. I see this from time to time. So these are things you may not see because you're here or there and you're looking this way. But I'm seeing this almost panoramic view of everyone. So I see this person in the corner who's reading from the Mus'haf, this one there who's on Twitter, you know. So it's not virtuous to recite the Qur'an during the khutbah because we prioritize what Allah and His Messenger give priority to Wasallam. And when the Imam stands on the minbar The priority is to listen to him And then to follow him in the prayer So other virtuous things Are put to the side until after Right, so no Two, four, six, eight rak'ah Nawafil during the khutbah or, or, or reading Qur'an or even doing dhikr the dhikr of that moment is to listen attentively. Fonsi too. To listen attentively. Um, any questions on Jumu'ah before we go on to the Eid prayer? I think it's pretty basic. One question Yeah, that's more of an issue of convenience. I'm saying, in, you know, in North America, if we try to organize Jumu'ah at a set time so that everybody can plan it ahead, 
with their work and school and life, if it's consistently two o'clock, they can tell their employer, I need my two o'clock lunch. Or they can tell, you know, they can get a time off of school and what, they can plan things based on that. Otherwise, in Muslim societies, Muslim majority countries, Jumar is when Dhuhr is. So whenever it happens to be. But in large swaths of the Muslim world, you don't have a huge variation in the time anyway. So it's not so much an issue there. Everyone, and then also it's, it happens to be a day off in many countries too, right? Or a partial day off. Yeah. Any other questions? Khair. So we go to Eid. Is Eid Fadr Ain? Is praying the Eid prayer Fadr Ain? Mm. So the Eid prayers are wajib for the very same people on whom Jumu'ah is wajib. So basically, if Jumu'ah is wajib on you, so is the Eid prayer. If Jumu'ah is not wajib on you, for whatever reason, the Eid prayer is not wajib on you. So the own, the, it has the exact same conditions, except for one thing. And that is the khutbah of the Eid, which is a sunnah and not wajib. Now, one of the, the, the ironies of all of this is a lot of people don't know the fiqh of Jumu'ah but so many people know this one fiqhi point about the Eid about the khutbah not being wajib and so they deprive themselves of the sunnah of sitting and listening attentively where they attend the Eid salat and as soon as it's done they're up and about and this is among the men too who are right there behind the imam you'll see sometimes men getting up and going and they'll say well it's not wajib it is not wajib but it is sunnah but you're depriving yourself of a sunnah so ideally we're praying the Eid prayer followed by the khutbah now if it's wajib on you to pray the Eid you need to know how to do it so in that sense learning how to do the Eid prayer is fardain for those on whom Jumu'ah is wajib right the fuqaha in the Hanafi school mentioned that it's disliked makru to pray voluntary prayers in the Eid Musalla, the Eid prayer area, or one's home before the Eid prayer on the day of Eid. But the night preceding the Eid, it is recommended to pray Qiyamul Layl and other Nawafil. There's the hadith in Ibn Majah in which the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said that whoever enlivens the night before Eid with worship, Allah will give life to their heart on a day when hearts die. This is because there is people, there's the festivities of Eid and the preparation for that. If a person pulls themselves away from all of that into nawafil, it enlivens the heart. But on the day of Eid itself, it's not recommended for the person to come before the Eid and just do rak'ahs after rak'ahs of nawafil in their house or here. And you, and you see that. Any nawafil should be done after they pray the Eid, after the khutbah, if they want to. But there's no specific virtue attached to extra nawafil 
before their Eid khutbah. One should be doing the takbirat. Right? Now, we come to the issue of how the Eid prayer is done in the Hanafi madhab. Right? I see some smiles. Now, for the record, we don't pray the Eid prayer here according to the Hanafi school. I mean, I lead it according to the Madiki school, but there's not much of a difference between the Shafi'is and the Madikis and how their Eid is done. It's just a difference of one takbira. But in the Hanafi school, the manner of offering their Eid prayer is substantially different. So different, in fact, that if someone wished to lead the community in the Eid prayer according to the Hanafi school, they would probably confuse 90% of the people. And they would not know what's going on. Because the timing of the takbirat and the positioning is different from the other schools. So we're just going to read through the description. But, you know, a person doesn't have to pray the Eid prayer in this particular manner. Why does this manner look so different from the manner of the Shafi'is and the, the, the Madikis? Well, the deeper you go into the fiqh, you look at the ahadith and the athar and how they reconciled them, you get different conclusions. So the Hanafi Eid, Eid prayer is with an opening takbir, where the Imam is doing the opening takbir, Allahu followed by the thana. What's the thana? Subhanakallah, wihamdika, tabarak, ismuka, wa ta'ala, jadduka, wa la ilaha, ghayruk, or other duas. That is the thana, the opening praises and glorifications. Then there are three extra takbirs raising the hands for each. After that, the Imam says, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim, Bismillahir Rahman ar-Rahim, both silently. And then he recites Surah Al-Fatiha and a chapter out loud. And then he says, Allahu Akbar, while going into Ruku' and doing that Raka'ah as usual. And then in the second Raka'ah, as people are listening to the Imam's recitation, he then gives three extra takbirs, raising his hands for each. And the people follow the Imam and they follow the rest of the prayer behind the Imam as normal. So I personally find it quite confusing simply because I've only prayed it once in my life. So it, it threw me off when I first did it. And I personally feel the Shafi or the Madikit way is simpler and less prone to people being confused. Because in the Shafi and Madikit schools, it's either seven takbirat in the first and six in the second for the Madikis, or eight in the first and seven in the second according to the Shafiris and all of them are happening before the recitation that's the thing so you know no one needs to really worry too much about that or lose sleep over it it's just the way it is presented the next thing is the janazah so again the same question we asked about Jumrah and Eid I asked now is the janazah fardain is it individually obligatory? It's far kifaya. In fact, when we talk about the distinction between fardain and far kifaya, 
one of the most common examples of something far kifaya is the janazah prayer because we know that it's not obligatory on everyone it's not possible how could it be it is far kifaya there has to be enough people in the community to fulfill that so that the obligation drops off the rest if that's the case why would we learn anything about the janazah if the janazah is fard kifaya and not fard ain well the answer is we may be in a situation where there are not enough people in the community to do it which means it then becomes an obligation on us so if it's ever possible in our context that something fard kifaya could be fard ain on us we should proactively learn how to fulfill that obligation and in our community here and in the greater pittsburgh community we have people in the muslim community who pass away almost every single day and we have in virtually every masjid you have a core group of dedicated volunteers who have taken it upon themselves to go out of their way to contribute to, to help with either the preparation for the ghusl the burial rites the janaza going to the cemetery uh, attending to all of these things may Allah reward them it's not something they get paid for but it's an obligation we have to have enough people who fulfill that on our behalf so given the possibility that it, we may not have enough people it's important to learn how to do those burial rites we're not going to cover the burial rites today because the burial rites are separate from the janaza prayer itself because this is module 5 on the prayer and when we talk about janaza or ahkamun janaza we talk about the the rites in with regards to preparing the deceased and the bathing the ghusl and the shrouding and then we talk about the janaza prayer and then we talk about the manner of the burial itself and how that's done we're not going to talk about the other rites of janaza we're only talking about the salat now the salat is one that many of us will perform you know even if we're not attending any of the other rites to prepare the body of the deceased or even attend the burial into the into the ground so the janaza is what we want to look at now the janaza how many takbirat are in the janaza four they're not five and everything is done silently there is no adhan there is no iqama we still have rows but there are some differences between the normal rows of salat and the rows of janaza and there's two main differences the first difference is that because there's no bowing and there's no sajda we don't have to have the rows spaced where a person could make sajda behind us so we can be tighter and closer it's fine that's number 1 number 2 is ideally we want to have at minimum of 3 rows and if there's more people it should be an odd number of rows whereas if it's an ordinary prayer in jamaa that is not a condition right is good but it's not a condition that you have that if you have only one row 
then you fill up that row. You don't create three rows when there are gaps in the, fr in the front row, and so on. So there are four takbirat. If you've attended the janazas here that I've led, you'll notice that I, I tend to give a little refresher on what we do. And the refresher I give is basically the Madiki way. There's slight differences between the Madikis and the Hanafis in this regard. So in the Hanafi school, you intend in your heart to pray for the sake of Allah and to supplicate for the deceased. So you do have a niyyah here. You have a niyyah to pray for the sake of Allah and to make dua for the deceased. There's a story in, in connection with this. It is mentioned by Imam al-Dhahabi in his seer Alam al-Nubala about the great Imam Sufyan al-Thawri, one of the great Imams. And it is said that one day he was called forth to lead the janazah prayer. He was this great Imam and they pushed him forward. And so he's standing in front of the shrouded body of the deceased. And everyone's lined up in their rows and they're just waiting for him to utter the takbir. One minute goes by, no takbir. Two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes go by and there's no takbir. And the people in the front are going up to him. What's wrong? Why aren't you doing the takbir? And he says, I am analyzing my niyyah. I want to make sure that this is for the sake of Allah and I'm not doing it because I'm the big Imam and I get prestige for being put up in the front. So it's important to have the niyyah of praying for the sake of Allah and also to make dua for the deceased. Sometimes we have people coming into the masjid for janazah and we, ha we don't know who these deceased people are. We don't know. And we're not really allowed to judge, to say, well, I've never seen them come to the masjid, or their family doesn't look to be that religious or that serious in deen, so, yeah, we shouldn't do that. Because that person is masturul hal. Their state is unknown. We don't know their state. So we default and assume the best, and we make dua for them. That's it. So in the first, you make the intention if you're praying behind the Imam, you also make the intention that you're praying behind an Imam. You then utter the takbir, and this is the only one in which you raise your hands. Right, you see people do Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. I mean, that's fine, you can do that, but in the Hanafi school and the Madiki school, the only time you raise your hands is in that first takbir. After that, you say Allahu Akbar, but you're not raising the hands. So you utter the first takbir, and then the person recites the thana, which is the opening praise and glorification one says when they begin the prayer. The fuqaha in the Hanafi school say you can recite the fatiha in the first takbirah, provided it is with the intention of dua, where the fatiha is a dua, not as tilawatul Qur'an. Because you can read verses of Qur'an with an intention of dua or you can read them with the intention of tilawa, recitation. 
So they say that if you recite the Fatiha in that first takbirah, it's fine if the intention is that the Fatiha is a dua for the deceased. Otherwise, not as a tilawa. One then utters the second takbir, after which they sin salawat upon the Prophet ﷺ. The Salat Ibrahimiyyah is preferred, uh, which everyone should memorize. Right, that should be known. After that, one utters the third takbir, and they utter the dua that we recite for the deceased. There's a couple of these. And if you don't know them, you can make any dua for the deceased that you want. But this is the dua that's transmitted that we have here in the slide. Allahumma khfir li hayyina wa mayitina wa shahidina wa ghaibina wa saghirina wa kabirina wa dhakarina wa unthana Allahumma man ahyaytahu minna fa ahyihi ala al-islam wa man tawafaytahu minna fa tawafahu ala al-iman And there's other duas like this. One then utters the fourth takbir and then the salams. There's nothing in particular that one says. So this is the manner of janazah. Not much different from the way I usually tell people to do it. I just say read Fatiha in the first. That's all. Everything else is the same. Um, that's it for these things. Uh, yeah. Uh, is there a different dua for a uh, deceased or male or female child compared to the adult? There is. I don't remember the dua, but there's yeah. There's a difference there. But if you don't remember that, then you just default to that. Just default to that. Yeah. Any other questions on Janazah? Yes. I don't have a question. I just have a comment. When you follow another prayer with you, you go to the fourth right away before we complete the third. The last line, uh, we, uh, it's not in this year. We say that by the time we say that, you're already in the fourth. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take note of that and spend a longer time in Dora. I'll do that. Yeah, that what you just mentioned, that's the that's the other version, that longer version. Yeah. And um, um, when he says reciting Surah Fatina, so we have to wait the, before reciting intention that this is the dua for the deceased. Because we just used to do, do like other prayers to help Yeah, so it's not, yeah, it's not a tilawa like you do tilawa in a normal salah. If you read Al-Fatiha, it's with the niyyah of dua. Yeah. Because Fatiha is a dua, right? I have a question. Sure. Recently there was a Janaza prayer, and that was a Shia family. They were all lined up um, for the funeral prayer. It was not explained to us what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that was a completely different uh, way of saying the Janaza prayer. Right. And everybody was just confu confused, didn't know what to do, just followed, you know. Right. Yeah, that's why you'll note in the beginning I said the janazah is four takbirat and not five and is done silently and not out loud. So that's in contradistinction to what you just described because the way they do it is, from my understanding, it's more takbirat than us and there's things done out loud. And yeah, so in that situation, now the way that that should have happened I or, or someone else 
should have led the janazah and that's it but people weren't here and there was confusion but yeah oh yeah I see yeah yeah see that that opens the door to other issues that should be discussed uh, and there should be some policies in that regard so that we minimize confusion and minimize fitna but yeah okay Yeah, well, I mean, one salam is sufficient. So you'll see some imams just do a single salam. Others will do a single one loudly, and the other one's a little silent. But a single salam is sufficient in that. No. So we've covered the, the Jumu'ah, the Eid, and Janazah. What remains are just issues regarding the person praying behind the imam, and then some miscellaneous issues. And there's a lot of different scenarios. A lot of things happen because people come late or they forget or the imam forgets or, you know, little things arise. So it, it's really helpful to know some basic rules governing these actions. So the follower, the one who's praying behind the imam, makes the intention to follow the imam at the opening of the prayer. And like we said before, that intention doesn't need to be verbalized. You know what you're doing. You're not entering the prayer with the understanding that you are praying by yourself. You know that you're praying behind the imam and following him. But that needs to be done at the opening of the prayer. You wouldn't make that intention halfway in. Likewise, in the Hanafi school, they mentioned that the imam must not be in a lesser state than the one following him. And what they mean by lesser state is, let's say the imam is praying tarawih. Tarawih is a sunnah. If a person comes and prays behind that imam with the intention of praying isha, that person is in a, uh, a higher state than the imam vis-a-vis the prayer because one prayer is fard the other is sunnah so the imam cannot be in a lesser state than the one who is following him you cannot pray isha behind an imam praying tarawih this happens a lot there are people who come late during ramadan and the imam is already praying tarawih and they join him with the intention of praying isha he prays two rak'ahs and gives salams and they get right back up and pray the last two on their own. It's very common. However, in the Hanafi school and that of others, this would be invalid for different reasons, right? In some of the madhahib, it's because the niyyah of the imam and the person praying have to be united. Ittihadun niyyah. But in this case, it's because the imam is in a lesser state than that one, at least in the context of the salat. So it means that that would be invalid for a person to pray isha behind someone praying tarawih. But what if the imam is praying isha and that person already prayed isha and they pray behind the imam with the intention of praying uh, nafila? Would that be allowed? 
Yes, because the imam is in a higher state than the one praying behind him. He's praying a fard, and the one praying behind him is praying a nafila. So even though the intentions are different, that would still be valid. Now, the imam and the follower must be praying the same prayer, like outside of the context of nafila versus fard and the mixing. So this means that if the imam is praying dhuhr, then the person wouldn't be praying asr behind him, right? Or asr, dhuhr, right? If they need to be praying the same prayer. According to Imam Shafi, that's actually okay. If a person prayed a different prayer, both are fard, right? So I wouldn't really worry too much about this. The area where this comes up the most is tarawir, really. It, it's, it's not too often you're going to find a person Those are fireworks. It's not too often that you're going to find a situation where the person is praying behind the imam, uh, a followed prayer, and he's praying a sunnah, except for tarawih. So if you've missed Isha at the masjid and you've come for tarawih, pray the Isha on your own, and then join the imam in tarawih, so that your salat is valid. If the imam offers the salams, and the follower has not yet completed his tashahud, he should complete it because it's wajib. You know, how many times has that happened to you? You're in tashahud and the imam goes, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. You're not done. But the tashahud is wajib. So what do you do? Do you follow the imam? If you follow the imam, you left something wajib. If you finish the tashahud, you're delaying your Salam after the Imam. So the fuqaha say you should complete it because it's wajib. However, if he finished the tashahud but not the Salat al Ibrahimiyyah, they should drop the Salat Ibrahimiyyah and do the Salam with the Imam because a Salat al Ibrahimiyyah is Sunnah, whereas the tashahud is wajib and joining the Imam is wajib. What you have here is a classical case of two wajibs conflicting. The wajib of following the imam and the wajib of reciting the tashahud. So if you're in that scenario, you have to pick which obligation you're going to follow. If you follow the imam and give the salams, you've dropped the tashahud, which is wajib. If you finish the tashahud, your salam will be delayed after the imam. You didn't, it didn't coincide, so you're lacking in that wajib. So if you're in that scenario, finish your tashahud and then do the salams. However, they say, if the person has done the tashahud and they haven't done the salat Ibrahimiyyah, they omit the salat Ibrahimiyyah and follow the imam and the salams because that's wajib and the salat Ibrahimiyyah is sunnah if you have a conflict between doing a wajib versus doing a sunnah, you will omit the sunnah to uphold the wajib. This is just basic logic. You basically uphold the wajib over the sunnah. Now, if the imam rises for the third rak'ah and the follower has not yet recited the tashahud, 
he should recite it. Although, if he doesn't complete it and rises with the imam, it's permissible. Because you have a dilemma here. If you, you're in the second rak'ah behind the imam, and you're doing the tashahud, the imam, for some reason, recited it really quickly, and he's back up for the third. You have a choice to make. If you finish the tashahud, that's good, you should. But if you sense from the speed of the imam that you're going to end up missing that qiyam and that rukur and that rising and all of those things will take place while you're still finishing that, if you get up to avoid these things, it's allowed, even if you omitted that tashahud. So this is a lesson to imams to slow down a little bit, right? As someone noted, people needing to slow down in janazah. Here's a common one. If the imam forgetfully stands up after performing the last sitting, so let's say he's praying dhuhr, he's in tashahud, and instead of giving salams, he stands up for a fifth rak'ah. Should you follow the imam? I thought the imam is for following. You say subhanallah. Yeah, you say subhanallah. You don't follow the imam in this regard. You don't. You wait. You just sit there. You say subhanallah. You don't need to get carried away about it. You know, say it once. You don't have to say subhanallah multiple times and oh, Allahu Akbar. Right? Just let him figure things out and you wait for him. If the imam performs that extra rak'ah and goes into sajda instead of sitting right back down, realizing the mistake, then you just give your salams and get out of there. You give your salam alone. So you have to picture this. I've never seen this happen, to be honest, but if it, it could. He's getting up for the fifth rak'ah. Everybody is sitting down. You know, some people inevitably get up and they, wait a minute, and they go back and, subhanallah, subhanallah. Now that imam, if he comes to his senses straight away, what should he do? He should just go right back down and sit. And then we've got to go to the prostration of forgetfulness because he added this. But let's say he's completely absent-minded. So he finishes it. He, he stands, he goes into rukur, Sami'allahu liman hamida, he goes into sajda. Okay, once he's gone into sajda, you're, you're all sitting there just waiting. Once he's gone into sajda, just go, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. You end it. You're on your own. You abort. However, if the imam sits back down after standing, you're still following him. You give the salams with the imam. If he comes to his senses. Now, I've never seen that happen. But like we said before, the fuqaha mention all sorts of scenarios because these things have happened. And they address all of these human possibilities. So, the next issue. person's coming late. A latecomer of a four-rak'ah congregational prayer. Uh, 
They missed the first two rak'ahs and caught the last two. What should they do when the Imam gives salams? They should get up and they should recite the Fatiha and another chapter. Think about this. Think about this. This is where the Hanafis and the Madikis agree. You miss the first two rak'ahs. What do you do in the first two? You recite Fatiha and another chapter. Now for Hanafis, you're not reciting anything behind the Imam, but now you're on your own. Right? Either way, in the first two rak'ahs, there is Fatiha and another chapter. You're on your own now. You miss the first two rak'ahs. And those two rak'ahs are defined as rak'ahs in which there is Fatiha and another chapter. So if those are the ones you missed and now you're on your own after the Imam gave salams, you get back up and you recite the Fatiha and another chapter. Now in the Madiki school, I don't know how the Hanafi school is with regards to this, but in the Madiki school, they're very clear about this. And they say, if you, let's say you come from Maghrib and you only got the third rakah, how many rakahs do you have to make up? Two. And the two that you missed have Fatiha and another chapter. And those two rakahs, it's, they're also recited out loud. So if you came in the Madaki school, if you came late and only caught one rakah of Maghrib, as soon as the Imam gives salams, you will get back up and you recite the Fatiha and another chapter, Jahran, out loud. Because that is the state in which it would normally be done. And those are the ones you missed. Most people, if they miss Dhuhr, two rakahs of Dhuhr, for instance, they just get up and do Fatiha because it feels to them like they're praying their last two rakahs. But it's actually what you missed were the first two, which have Fatiha and another chapter. Yes, it's true that as a Hanafi, you're praying behind the Imam. There's no recitation behind the Imam, neither the Fatiha nor another chapter. But once the prayer has ended and you're on your own, you're no longer praying behind the Imam. So you're defaulting to what you do when you're alone, which is the Fatiha and another chapter. So one would do this. In your Maghrib example, it gets complicated. Yeah. You're finishing, once you stand up, this is your second rakah. Yeah. Then you have to sit down. Yeah, of course. You're sitting in tashahuds will be different. Yeah. And there's even a riddle, a basic riddle they teach children. How can you do four tashahuds in a three rak'ah prayer? Four tashahuds in Maghrib. Is it possible? It is. If you, you catch the first tashahud, which was the Imam's second, then you, and you're in his third, which is going to be your second. second. No, the other way. No, you missed the first rakah. You, you come to the, you, you catch the imam after he's risen from rukur. So you didn't catch that rakah. But you're there for his tashahud. And then you go to go to the next tashahud. And then the next one is your second. And then you have your third, but you did a total of four because that first one was one you caught late. Anyhow, yeah, it happens. 
basically, yeah. So if you missed, just think about what you prayed behind the imam. If, if what you prayed behind him was the silent portion, you missed the out, the out loud portion that has Fatiha and another chapter. So what you are praying in a four rakah prayer, you caught, the, you, you caught the last two. You caught the portion that doesn't have another chapter after Fatiha. What you missed were the ones that have Fatiha and another chapter. So when you rise back up, those are the two that you're actually you're praying. It sounds confusing because the order is one, two, three, four, and, and why would you pray the first two when you just prayed two? But that's what you missed, right? So you're basically doing it in this manner. So just think about it. What do you mean? Yeah, I've yeah. No. It's not wajib. Not wajib. Yeah. So let's say okay. The last point here: um, when joining the congregation in prayer, while the imam is bowing, they're in the rukur. One catches the rak'ah only if after saying the tahrima, Allahu Akbar, while standing, he reaches the bowing position while the imam is also in the bowing position. Two very important things here. This is so important because if the person gets this wrong, they're spoiling their prayer because they're, they're deficient. How often have you been in the masjid praying behind the imam? and you're in rukur, and you hear those footsteps, and you hear the keys, because they had their keys out somehow, and they, they throw them to just rush. They're rushing because they want to get into rukur, while the imam is in rukur, because if they can get there before he rises, they will catch that rakah. But there's a problem here. Sometimes people will just go, Allahu Akbar, and they're right into rukur. They actually didn't do the proper takbirah in qiyam. They didn't go Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, into rukur. They went Allahu Akbar, like straight into rukur. That is invalid. Number two, they come and they may get it, Allahu Akbar, first takbirah, and they're going into rukur. But the imam starts to rise, and they just get there in the nick of time, but he started rising. If they think they catch that rak'ah, they're wrong. Because the moment he starts to rise, that rak'ah has been missed. And it's not even, it's discouraged, to be frank. It's discouraged in the hadith to run to catch the rak'ah. It's better to just miss it and enter the salat with sakina and waqar with tranquility and dignity. We shouldn't be running. There's no need. Okay, you missed the rakah. It happens. Don't spoil the prayer or spoil your presence and calmness and tranquility trying to make a mad sprint just to catch the imam in the rukur. Where you may do these things inadvertently and spoil your prayer. Right? 
So you have to catch it in this way. Um, any, any questions on those issues? Because those are just miscellaneous matters concerning praying behind the imam. Uh, one thing, I should mention this specifically because of our imam ratib. Uh, you know our imam ratib loves to occasionally recite uh, other qiraat. One should not be correcting the imam in their recitation of alternate qiraat because that would be extra actions that could invalidate their own prayer. They should be sure that the imam is making a mistake before they correct him. If the imam says, Maliki Yawm din and someone thinks, oh my gosh, what does this guy know? This guy doesn't even know how to read Al-Fatiha. And they say, Maliki Yawm din This is a problem, right? So I'll add that to this discussion. One doesn't correct the imam in things unless they've omitted or added something and is very clear. And for recitation, they're certain that it's a mistake. Yeah. So miscellaneous issues. Al-Masail uh, al-Mutafarriqa. Just various issues. Let's talk about the rows, the prayer rows. How rows are formed. What is the proper way to stand within a row? What if someone breaks their wudu and walks out of the row? What if a person comes and the rows are completely filled? Does he stand alone? These are some questions that came to me. Um, there's some things to mention here. The row in salat should start directly behind the imam and should be distributed to his right and to his left. And there should not be large gaps in the rows. And large here is defined as anything really beyond a hand span like this. So a hand span, anything more than that is, is a bit long. It's a, it's, a, it's a large gap. It should be filled. One does not have to press their feet next to their neighbor. They can be spaced. That's fine. But it shouldn't be a large gap. And now, you want to fill the first row completely before going to the second. If someone breaks his wudu and walks out of the row, a person currently in prayer in the row behind him should fill that gap. Or the people praying on either side of the person who left should move sidewards to fill it. So this person, they broke their wudu. They leave the row. The person behind him should step in and fill that gap. Those extra steps are not amal kathir or abundant action that invalidates the prayer. Because that is taken for islah salat for fixing the prayer. So they step forward into that space. If they don't, the other alternative is for the people in that broken row on either side of him to come closer to fill in that gap from both sides. That's another option. And they can move and that's fine. If someone comes late and all of the rows are formed, so let's say you, have, you come to the masjid, one row is completely filled and on, on the left and right side, the last person on each side has his shoulder on the wall. There's no space. There's no one else. What are you going to do? If you come late and all the rows are formed, you should wait for someone else to enter the masjid 
in former row with you. So you're standing there, you're waiting for someone else to come. If they come, they join you. The two of you are behind everyone else in the second row, and you're not standing by yourself. However, if you fear that waiting for that second person will cause you to miss a rak'ah, then you should touch the person in the row to step out and form a row with you. Someone should step out of that row to form a row with you, and that row will then fill in sidewards to make up the gap. So they are going to step back and form a row with you, and this is another option. It is permissible, however, to pray in a, in a row completely by yourself. However, the standard view is that it is makruh to do so, it's disliked. However, you do find something interesting in the Hanafi school, in the latter, the latter madhab, the latter day madhab. In the latter day articulation of the school, some of the ulama would say that standing alone is better in that circumstance. In one Hanafi text, Quniya, it says, وَالْقِيَامُ وَحْدُهُ أَوْلَى فِي زَمَانِنَا لِغَلَبَةِ الْجَهْلِ عَلَى الْعَوَامِ He says in our day and age, it's better for him to stand alone due to the overwhelming ignorance among common folk. And it seems that he says this because a lot of people just don't know what to do. And in that case, you just stand in the row by yourself if you don't think people are going to understand how to act to get into that role with you. If people understand, then you either wait for someone to come, if no one's coming, gently tap someone to come out of the first row and pray with you. If, if you know that they know how to do that, do it. If you think that no one knows anything about that and it's gonna cause a lot of confusion, just pray by yourself in that role. And inshallah, someone will come. And if not, your prayer is still valid. All right, now let's say you're in the masjid. You're praying and it's a large jama'ah, 15 rows. And you break your wudu while in salat. And let's say you're in the front row and it's tightly packed. How do you get out of the front row to go make wudu again? You have to get out of that front row and go through all of these other people 15 rows behind you. How do you do this? Well, and what's the ruling on walking in front of those people? If you break your wudu, you need to leave. You wouldn't remain in the salat making the postures, the movements. You leave. If the rows behind you are completely full, you have the option of walking to the side. Now, this is not mentioned in the fiqh text that I've come across, but it's just a practical option. The move to the side near the wall to position yourself between a person and the wall and just go from that side so you're not breaking in through each row trying to get out. That's one option. And this ensures that you disturb the least amount of people. But if, let's say, you have the ability to walk in front of people and around them, there's no harm in that if you have to, because 
the sutra, the barrier of the imam, serves as the barrier for the rest of the people. As long as the imam has a barrier in front of him, blocking people from passing in front of him, anyone else behind him is covered. If you walk in front of that person, it doesn't have the same level of prohibition as it would if the person's praying by themselves, right? So if you had to exit the salat and go in between the rows as people are standing, it's absolutely fine. Although you're walking in front of them, you understand that they have a barrier and that is the barrier of the imam that's in front of the imam. So they're covered and you're okay and you can get out. If the people or a person is praying alone, it's unlawful for you to walk in front of them in the distance of it would take for a sajda. If you were to walk in front of them on purpose, that would be sinful. And we would avoid that, obviously. Right? And the last issue is the issue of carrying children in prayer. Now, in the Hanafi school, it is disliked to carry a child during prayer unless there is a haja, a need. And this action is permitted when there's a dire need. But even in those situations where there's a need to carry the child, one must ensure that the child is free of any najasa on their bodies, their clothes, or diaper. And when the parent is carrying the child, they should carry the child in such a way that they're not fidgeting and doing excess movement. Uh, there does seem to be a difference of opinion within the Hanafi school. A stricter view says it is amal kathir, and they say the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ carrying Sayyidina Hussein is, some say, abrogated with other rulings that came later. Um, it doesn't seem to be completely agreed upon among the fuqaha regarding this. Others would say, no, if there is a legitimate need to carry the child, sure, carry the child. But even in that need, you need to make sure the child doesn't have najasa. Because if the child has najasa, you can't pray while carrying najasa on your clothes, on your body, on your place of prayer, or anything attached to you. And the child is attached to you. So you can't carry najasa in that, in the, in that scenario. So these are just some miscellaneous issues with regard to prayer. And we tried to cover everything that we need without going into a lot of unnecessary detail. So I hope that the most important issues that are immediately uh, accessible and relevant have been covered adequately, inshallah. Uh, any, any success in conveying these rulings is from the tawfiq of Allah. Any error or forgetfulness or neglect on my part is from uh, myself or shaitan. And alhamdulillah, we have finished module 10. So we have finished our aqidah, our foundations of how Islam is transmitted, purification, prayer, and fasting. So what remains is the act of worship involving our wealth and then transactions 
in how we interact with other people. So we have a very major shift coming in our Fardain modules. Module 6 is Zakat. And we're not limiting ourselves to the Hanafi school in presenting the fiqh of Zakat because it's a one, it happens once a year. And we don't need to stick to just the Hanafi school for that. I don't anticipate module six going longer than three sessions because a lot of the details of zakat are best covered on, in one-on-one sessions so a person can explain their own circumstances to get a very carefully tailored answer for their specific issue as opposed to teaching general principles. We'll just teach the general principles and how to determine basic things. And the rest of these things are better done one-on-one. So maybe two, three sessions we'll cover for the fiqh of zakat, after which we go into the uh, hajj. No, we don't do hajj. Because hajj, we just talk about when it's wajib, when it's obligatory, as far as learning all the ins and outs of the rites. The ulama say that is not fardain to know until you're in the position to make the hajj and at that moment it's fard for you to know. So when we have a, a substantial group who want to go for hajj, we would teach the fardain of the hajj at that moment. We wouldn't do it before that. Uh, so after that comes the mu'amalat, transactions, um, marriage, divorce, maintenance, money matters, business, buying, selling. So we have a very significant shift occurring uh, in the next module and the subsequent modules, inshallah ta'ala. I will now send out the test tonight in the WhatsApp group. And we don't have class next week. So I have to check the calendar. So we have... So today is the 16th. So no class on the 23rd. We will have class on the 30th. The test is due on the 30th before class. And I will, between the 30th and the next class, I will spend the week looking at the grades, inshallah. And as you know, those of you who email the answers, if I often give personalized answers if your answer is incorrect or partially correct. So that's also a chance for you to put in any questions if you want to ask anything personal, something that is confusing or you want me to elaborate on. So, yeah. So, so no class next Friday. And we resume on the 30th of September, inshallah, on which the test is due. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.